Gathering for worship is the most important thing we do as Christians. It is our highest privilege. It is the catalyst that drives the whole Christian life. Uh, It knits us together as a community. It's where we enjoy our deepest and most profound fellowship with God. Worshiping the triune God is our greatest duty and is, or at least should be, our greatest joy. And yet... While worship is the most important thing we do, there is probably more confusion in the church today about worship than virtually any other topic, and that's really saying something, because we live in a day where the church is confused about a lot of things. For the last few generations, the church has experienced tension over the so-called worship wars. The worship wars. The worship wars have been largely about style. For example, what style of music should we sing? Should the service be more traditional or more contemporary? Now, I'm not going to tell you none of that matters. Style is important. Some styles are more fitting for the kind of event that worship is, just like there are certain styles more appropriate for the kind of event that, say, a wedding is. Style is a matter of aesthetics or beauty, and worship should certainly be beautiful. Scripture has quite a bit to say about that. Further, style connects to how casual or reverent the worship service is, and Scripture speaks a great deal to the fact that we should worship God reverently. The fear of God matters and is necessary if we are to worship God rightly. So the fear of God should shape the style of the service. Now, it's not the only thing that shapes the service, but certainly one of the things. But here's the deal. The worship wars have really missed the point. This is how confused we are about worship. We don't even know what to fight about. We don't even argue over the right things. And I think that's because we are generally so ignorant of what the Bible teaches about worship and how it teaches about worship. A lot of it is because we are ignorant of the Old Testament. And in fact, we pit the Old Testament against the New Testament as if God started a new religion when Jesus and the Spirit came. The truth is, the Old Testament is Christian scripture. And that's why we read from the Old Testament virtually every single Sunday and sing from the Old Testament virtually every single Sunday as God has commanded us to sing psalms. That's from the Old Testament, but Christians are commanded to sing it. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. The Bible is one book about one God and one people telling one story from beginning to end. And so the New Testament does not start from scratch. Rather, it builds upon and fulfills all that went before. The great church father Augustine put it well. He said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. What God shows us in the New Testament is simply the fulfillment of what he had promised In the Old, as you move from Old Testament to New Testament, you're moving from types and shadows and promises to their fulfillment. When it comes to worship, the real issue is not style so much as it is structure. That is the form or the structure of the service, what you might call the flow of the service. And to get that, to see how important that is, got to go back to the Old Testament. And I would say in particular, you have to go back to the book of Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. Now, this is not the only place in the Bible where we are given 
the pattern for worship. As I just said, the Bible's one book from beginning to end. And so you can find this pattern of worship throughout the scriptures, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's in Genesis, it's in Revelation, it's many places there in between. But it's especially in Leviticus where I think we see this very clearly. And in fact, in Leviticus chapter 9, the part of it we read this morning. Leviticus chapter 9 is paradigmatic. It gives us a paradigm or a template for worship. Now, the moment I start talking about Leviticus, of course, there is a problem. And the problem is that Leviticus is extremely difficult for modern American Christians to get through. It's a very difficult book for us to read, for us to study, for us to understand. It seems so foreign. I would say that's part of the problem, actually. But uh, we need to understand the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus has certainly been the roadblock that has crashed many a Bible reading program. Uh, many people set out to read the Bible, say you set out to read the Bible in a year, and you get through Genesis, and that's just fine because it's lots of stories, and you can just cruise right through most of Exodus because there's a lot of stories there. But then the Bible reader tends to stall out when he gets to Leviticus, or he just skips Leviticus altogether, and thus ignorance of biblical patterns of worship get perpetuated. Our ignorance of Leviticus, our refusal to deal with it, to work to understand it, is right at the heart of this. Leviticus is basically an instruction manual for Old Covenant priests, for the Levites. And while it might seem complex, it's really not that hard if you can grasp a few keys. In fact, the whole book of Leviticus is only about 20 pages in my English translation. 20 pages, that's all. English grammar is more complicated than the book of, Le of Leviticus. English grammar is more complicated than the rituals described in the book of Leviticus. You could not write an English grammar textbook as short as Leviticus. But it's not just English teachers who have a more complicated job than the old covenant priests. Think about auto mechanics, auto repair. You ever seen one of those auto repair manuals, like a children's auto repair manual? They're usually about this thick. Okay, and there's a lot in there, and that's just for one model car, maybe for a few years of that car, and a real auto mechanic might have dozens of those manuals on his shelves. Now, you might say, well, sure, but auto repair manuals are really repetitive. There's a lot of overlap in how you change the oil or how you replace the filters from one car to another, so it's not like you have to relearn everything every single time. I'll grant that, but you know what else has a lot of rep rep repetition? The Old Covenant sacrificial system as described in Leviticus. So don't be afraid of Leviticus. Leviticus is your friend. Leviticus is here to help. Leviticus wants to be understood. And so don't run away from Leviticus. With a little bit of effort, you can understand what's happening. Now, before we dig into Leviticus 9, because really, I mean, I can deal with Leviticus 9 pretty quickly, so we'll do that right towards the end. But before we dig into Leviticus 9, I want to show you why this is so important, why this is such an important chapter in the Bible for Christian worship. And so let me point something else out to you here. 
Leviticus, of course, is best known for describing different types of animal sacrifices, the different types of animal sacrifices that Old Covenant worshipers would offer at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. The tabernacle and then the temple was the house for God. It's where God dwelt. That's where worshipers would go to offer sacrifice. There were different types of sacrifice, depending on the occasion. Those animal sacrifices, of course, all pointed ahead to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's just the ABCs of the Christian faith, right? They offered animals, the shedding of blood, the, the blood of animals, the blood of bulls and goats. We don't do that anymore because Jesus died on the cross. His once and for all death took away sin. The whole book of Hebrews in the New Testament was written to show us that, to show us, no, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but the blood of Jesus has taken away our sin, and so we no longer offer animal sacrifices. In fact, to do so would be to greatly dishonor Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. And so that's why you don't have to bring your livestock to church the way they did in the Old Covenant. That's one of the great benefits of living in the New Covenant, right? But Jesus' work does not exhaust the meaning of those sacrifices, and the New Testament shows us this. There's actually a further follow-through. Yes, the sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus, but there is a further fulfillment. It's true that in the New Covenant, the priesthood has been transformed. Our priesthood doesn't look like their priesthood. It's also true we don't have a single physical tabernacle or temple where God dwells, where we gather for Jerusalem, one centralized sanctuary the way they did. But, this is key, all throughout the New Testament, sacrificial language is used to describe acts of Christian worship. This is so crucial to see, so crucial to understand. Look again at Leviticus 9. Look at, look at verse 24. We find there that fire came out from the Lord's presence. So this is God himself igniting the altar. Fire comes out from the Lord's presence and consumes the sacrifices at the tabernacle. So at the start of tabernacle worship, fire from the Lord himself consumed the sacrifices. That's how God gets the system started. The same thing happened in uh, later history, in, later on in Israel's history, with the temple that Solomon built. The, Solomon was greater than, the, the, the temple of Solomon was greater than the tabernacle of Moses. And the first time they set up the sacrifices to do worship there, what happened? Fire came from the very presence of God to consume those sacrifices. Well, you know what else? The same thing happened again at the start of the new covenant. We read about it this morning in Acts chapter 2. Today is Pentecost Sunday, the day we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, forming the church into the new and true tabernacle, forming the church into the temple or house of the living God. And what do you see in Acts chapter 2? You see fire coming from the presence of God upon the sacrifices. Only now the sacrifices are not animals, they are people. They are living sacrifices. In the New Covenant, we don't offer animals, we offer ourselves. And the fire is not that fire on the altar, the fire is the Holy Spirit. See, Leviticus 9 helps us understand Acts chapter 2. The fire of the Spirit comes upon us all as Christians and transforms us into a living sacrifice. So we can say this. The New Covenant does not eradicate sacrificial worship. It transforms sacrificial 
worship. The new covenant does not eradicate having a house for the Lord. Rather, those functions that once belonged to the tabernacle and the temple now belong to the church. It used to be you'd go to the tabernacle to offer sacrifice. Now we come together as a church to offer sacrifice. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, to give you an example of this, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, you, that is you new covenant believers, you are living stones in the true temple of God. He says, you are a royal priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices. In other words, Peter says, you do in a new covenant way what the Levites did in an old covenant way. What they were doing in an old covenant form at an old covenant house, now you do in a new covenant way as a new covenant house. See, really the key to making sense of and making use of Leviticus as a new covenant Christian is understanding this point. It's understanding how to translate old covenant sacrifices into their new covenant counterparts. That's what we have to do. Translate old covenant rites and rituals into their new covenant forms. And of course, this is something we're, we're actually all familiar with, and sometimes it's pretty easy to understand how this works. Take circumcision as an example. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, applied to all male children in Israel on the eighth day. Circumcision finds its fulfillment in the cross of Jesus. But you know what else? It also finds its fulfillment in the Christian sacrament of baptism. The same covenant promise that ancient Israelites would claim when they gave their boys circumcision as the sign of the covenant, that same promise is now claimed by Christian parents when they bring their children for baptism. So note this, the sign of the covenant has been transformed. The meaning of circumcision has been taken up into baptism. Now, baptism is a lot more than the new covenant circumcision, but it's certainly not less. Everything circumcision meant is now fulfilled in baptism. And so Paul says to Gentile Christians who are facing pressure from Judaizers, he says to Gentile Christians in Colossians chapter 2, you don't need to be circumcised because you've been baptized. Baptism is the new covenant counterpart and fulfillment of circumcision. It's the same with the Sabbath. We don't keep the seventh day as a day of worship any longer. The old covenant Sabbath has been transformed. It's been transformed and fulfilled by the Christian Lord's Day. The Christian Lord's Day is the new covenant Sabbath. And so now the day has changed. We now worship on the first day of the week. But understand this, what that means is the rest and enthronement that were promised in the Old Covenant Sabbath, that's no longer a future expectation, so it's no longer something symbolized by looking ahead to the end of the week. Rather, because it is a present possession for us now in Christ, that rest and that enthronement, we commemorate that and we celebrate that reality by beginning our week with the Lord's Day with this Christian Sabbath. We already possess what the Sabbath promised. And so now we don't look ahead to it all week. Rather, we start our week with it and build off of it. Because the Christian Lord's Day is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant Sabbath. Well, just as circumcision and Sabbath have been transformed and fulfilled, so the sacrifices of Leviticus have been transformed and fulfilled. Indeed, they find their fulfillment not only in Jesus' once and for all death on the cross, they find their fulfillment in Christian liturgy. 
They find their fulfillment in Christian worship. They're finding their fulfillment right here in our midst this morning. And again and again, the New Testament reinforces this reality. The New Testament uses the language of Leviticus. It uses the language of sacrifice to describe acts of Christian worship. And so Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice, see there it is, there's that language, a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Hebrews is saying, don't bring animals as your sacrifice. How do you sacrifice? By praising God. When we confess God's name in songs, in prayers, and in the creed, Hebrews tells us we are offering sacrifice to God. That's our Christian sacrifice. Another example of this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 18, describes tithes and offerings that were collected in the Philippian church, and now they've been passed on to Paul through Epaphroditus, and so Paul's writing them basically a thank you note, uh, is what, Levit what, uh, what Philippians is. So he's writing them this thank you letter, and he tells them the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering. There is the language of Leviticus showing up in Philippians. He says the gifts you sent, the monetary gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. How did the Philippians sacrifice to the Lord? How did they make an offering, a sacrifice before the Lord? Their sacrifice was not an animal. Rather, it was part of their paycheck that they set aside in a worship service for holy use by the church. Now, I could go on and give you a bunch more examples of this because the New Testament is literally filled with this kind of thing where the language of sacrifice is used to describe Christian acts of worship. But again, here's the point. Those Levitical categories, the Levitical language of sacrifice has not been abrogated. Rather, it's, it finds its fulfillment in these New Covenant acts of worship. The language of Leviticus is applied to Christian liturgy. Now why? Why do that? Why does scripture do this? Well it's simple really. The point is this. The old covenant patterns of worship have come to fulfillment in new covenant worship. No we don't do exactly what the Levites did that's obvious but we do follow the same patterns that God gave them. We follow those patterns now in their transformed new covenant form but we follow the same patterns. I'll put it this way to really summarize. Animal sacrifices have been abrogated, but not sacrifices per se. Animal sacrifices have been brought to an end, but not the way of sacrifice. The patterns of sacrifice are still in force. I can put it to you this way. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for instruction, reproof, and correction and to make us complete and equipped for every good work. And that means that Leviticus 9 is profitable for instruction in the good work of worship. Leviticus 9 equips us for the good work of worship. Again, much of the church's confusion about worship today traces back to just this point, to ignorance of the old covenant Levitical pattern for worship. And because we don't see it in Leviticus, we don't see it when it shows up in other places, including places like the book of Revelation uh, and, and various other places in Scripture. Leviticus shows us the sacrificial pathway into the presence of God. 
And this is really what we mean by the word liturgy. This is really what we are describing with that term liturgy. Liturgy means service. Uh, and it's what we do together in the presence of God. That's what the word liturgy describes. But actually the word describes not only our service to God, this is key, it also describes God's service to us. And that's why the traditional name for this kind of gathering is the divine service. Or as we put it in our bulletin, if you look at that inside front page, the Lord's service. That's what we call it, the Lord's service. That's the traditional name. People, uh, Christians in other eras would not say, I'm going to worship. They would say, we're going to the Lord's service. We're going to the divine service. And this is why that matters. What happens in this gathering is not just our service to God, but before it can even be that, it is God's service to us. This is where we come to receive God's gifts that we might give him thanks and praise. And again, you see this if you really understand what's happening in Leviticus. The template for the liturgy, the template for worship, were given in Leviticus. Once we understand the different types of offerings, the different types of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus, once we understand what they mean and the sequence in which they are offered, we can start to understand how Leviticus 9 shows us what New Covenant worship is all about, how New Covenant worship is supposed to work. We can start to see how those categories of diff the different offerings and the sequence of the different offerings in Leviticus, how that translates into New Covenant worship. You know, sometimes people say, well, we can sort of worship God any way we want, right? Because God didn't drop down a bulletin, a, a, an order of service from heaven in the New Testament. And I want to say, not so fast, my friend. He actually did. I think you could make a case that's actually what the book of Revelation is in part. But even if God didn't do that in the New Testament, he didn't have to. He had already given them all the patterns they needed in the book of Leviticus. It's right there in the scripture, right in front of us. So what I want to do is walk you through Leviticus chapter 9, the part we read. And as I do so, you will see we are actually walking through TPC's liturgy, the very liturgy we're engaged in this morning. And actually, if you were to go back and look at the church throughout history, you would see for much of history, this is how the church has worshipped. The church has understood this and has basically used this same pattern. So you can follow along in Leviticus chapter 9, or actually you can follow right along in your bulletin because it's right there in your bulletin. You're going to see this order there. So let me get you started by situating you in Leviticus chapter 9. Where are we? Well, in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7, you have described the four or five main types of offerings. Depending on how you count them, I'd say they're basically four. The four basic types of offerings. That's Leviticus 1 through 7. Then in Leviticus chapter 8, the priests are ordained. And so now Aaron and his sons, the priesthood, they are ready to minister in the tabernacle. This tabernacle that was built at the end of the book of Exodus, now Aaron and his sons are ready to minister there. And so think of this in Leviticus 9 as the first time the Israelites in their newly constituted form with their new tabernacle and their new priesthood, this is the first time they go to church. This is their first tabernacle worship service. I've got a friend that was preaching his way through Leviticus, and when he preached on this passage in Leviticus 9, he entitled his sermon, Going to Church for the First Time. 
because that really is what it was like for them. This is their first time to have corporate worship at the tabernacle. So again, it's going to set the pattern. It's going to be the paradigm. It's going to give the template. Chapter 9, verse 1 tells us this is the eighth day, which in context, I suppose, follows the seven-day ordination ceremony of the previous chapter. Verse 5 is a call to worship, so it's a call for the nation to assemble at the house of God, for the nation to gather for corporate worship. And we're told in verse 5, all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord, so all the people came together into the presence of God. Verses 6 to 14 then go over the offerings for the priests, and that would be interesting to look at, but we're going to pass that by because that's rather unique. Uh, Again, it's the first time they're gathered at the tabernacle, so the priests have to do their run-through, although it is interesting that the sacrifices are presented in the same order that they're going to be presented in for corporate worship uh, later in the chapter. Our interest here really starts with verse 15, with the people's offerings. This is corporate worship worship. And the first offering is the sin offering. And if you go back and look at the sin offering as it is described in Leviticus, you can ask the question, what does the sin offering highlight? Well, it's very simple. The sin offering highlights confession of sin and cleansing from sin. We would say this is confession and absolution. Think of it this way. This is what the sin offering is, and this is why the sin offering comes first. If I was out walking around and I got all muddy, would you want me to wipe my feet before I walked into your house? Of course you would. Of course, that's just good manners. That's that's just the right thing to do. It's the same with God. We've been walking around in the world all week. We've been getting muddy and dirty with sin. And so the first thing we need to do when we come into God's house is get cleaned off. And that's what the sin offering is all about. That's why the service starts here. Now, what I find amazing and frustrating is there are lots and lots of Christians gathering in churches today all over this city and elsewhere who are sauntering right into God's presence without any acknowledgement of their sin, without any acknowledgement of the mud they've gotten into since last Sunday's service. They're not wiping their feet before they enter into God's house. It's as if they're tracking the mud right into God's house. I don't know why God doesn't just consume them with his fiery wrath. Actually, God does that in the next chapter with Nadab and Abihu when they try to get creative with the liturgy. Fire comes out from the altar and completely destroys Nadab and Abihu. This has got to be understood as a complete lack of reverence. The doorway into God's house is confession. It is the sin offering. And again and again you see this. When God's people first encounter God's presence, what do they do? Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He comes into the temple, he encounters God's presence, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips dwelling among a people of unclean lips. There's got to be a place for that in the service. That's the first thing Isaiah does when he comes into the presence of God is confess his sin. Same thing with Ezekiel when he encounters the presence of God. Same thing with the Apostle John. When they encounter the presence of God, they fall down like dead men. There has to be a place for that in our service. And this is why I would say kneeling is the appropriate posture for the confession of sin because it is a posture of humility. And I'll tell you this too, note that even in the Old Covenant, they knew that the real essence of the sin offering was not the animal sacrifice, but rather, as David put it in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the sin offering. The broken spirit, the contrite heart. I've sinned, I'm unclean, 
I need to be cleansed. And so note this, the sin offering, the point of the sin offering is not just confessing sin, it's also receiving cleansing. It's receiving absolution. In Isaiah 6, after he cries out, I am undone, what does God do? The angel takes a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah with it and cleanses him. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is why all the classic liturgies throughout the history of the church begin with a confession of sin. And they begin with absolution. Confession and absolution comes at the beginning. By absolution, I mean hearing God through his representative declare your forgiveness, that you have received a full and free forgiveness. See, that's not just an empty ritual we're going through every week. This is the sin offering. And of course, you can see it marked in our bulletin right before the confession of sin. The Lord cleanses us. The sin offering, that's what it's about right there in Leviticus. The next sacrifice in the sequence in Leviticus 9 is there in verse 16. Uh, in most English translations, it's called the burnt offering, but that's not really what the word actually means. It is the going up offering, or it could be translated as the ascension offering. If you don't have to take my word for this, you can go look at any good commentary on Leviticus, and it will tell you that's what this means. It is the going up offering, or the ascension offering. So ask this. If the sin offering translates into confession and absolution, what does the ascension offering translate into? What is that for us as New Covenant Christians? Well, liturgically, this is our ascension. This is our entrance into the heavenly sanctuary. We ascend into the Lord's presence. We lift our hearts up to the Lord. That's the line we use in the liturgy that goes back to the earliest Christians and how they worship. They had this sense that having confessed our sins and having received God's forgiveness, now we can enter into the heavenly sanctuary and join the heavenly throngs that are worshiping. We can join in the heavenly liturgy. We lift our hearts up to the Lord. We enter into the heavenly sanctuary. In Leviticus, the emphasis of this offering, if you look in detail at what the ascension offering or the whole burnt offering involves, you find that what's unique about it is the entire animal is being burned up and turned into smoke on God's altar. And so the smoke ascends. See, that's the whole idea, the ascension of the smoke, the, the, the smoke ascending as a sweet-smelling aroma going up to the Lord. The tabernacle was a symbolic mountain. The tabernacle was like a movable Sinai kind of like a, a portable Mount Sinai. And to go into the tabernacle was then to go up into heaven symbolically. To go in was to go up. That's how they understood it. Hebrews 10 tells us that in the new covenant, we go up not into an earthly tabernacle, but into the actual most holy place of heaven through this new and living way Christ has opened up for us. Hebrews 10 tells us that. In fact, there's lots of places in the New Testament that tell us this is the great privilege of new covenant worship. We enter into the heavenly most holy place. In fact, Hebrews 10 really follows the same pattern, the same sequence as Leviticus 8 and 9. Remember, Levit Leviticus 8 is the ordination of the priests. Leviticus 9 is ministering in God's house. Well, Hebrews 10 tells us that we have been ordained as priests. Hebrews 10 says, having had our bodies washed with water, that's baptism, that's our new covenant 
priestly ordination. So this is actually another thing that baptism fulfills. You've got this rite or this ritual of priestly ordination in the Old Covenant. It's fulfilled in Christian baptism. If you're baptized, you're a priest. You're part of the royal priesthood. And so Hebrews 10 says, having had our bodies washed with water, having been ordained to this new covenant priesthood, we now draw near to God in his heavenly sanctuary. We have access to heaven itself. Or think about the pattern, if you want to see this in another place, the pattern in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, there is a call to worship with this vision of the risen Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus calls on the seven churches to confess their sin and to repent. And then at the beginning of, John, of Revelation chapter 4, John, as a representative of the church, is told to come up here. He's told to ascend into heaven, and he does ascend into heaven, and he joins the heavenly liturgy. John lifts his heart up to the Lord, and he joins in the worship of heaven. That's what the ascension offering is all about. But you know what else it's all about? It is about total consecration to God. And so in the ascension offering, just as the priest of the old covenant would use his sword to cut apart the sacrificial animal, separating joint from marrow, and then he would put the pieces of the animal on the altar, so that it might ascend in smoke to the Lord. So in this part of the service, Jesus uses the sword of his word, the double-edged, living and active sword of his word to cut us apart and transform us. Hebrews 4.12, of course, makes reference to this, how the sword of the word cuts us apart, dividing joint and marrow, dividing soul and spirit even. And that's why during the sec this section of the liturgy, the ascension section of the liturgy, this is where the reading of the word and the sermon comes because this is where the double-edged sword of the word is at work to transform us. It's not just that God speaks to us from heaven in the ascension offering. It's that his word transforms us and consecrates us completely to his service. That's what's happening in the ascension. Then third, we come to, uh, in verse 17 of Leviticus 9, we come to what is called the grain offering. And what's interesting about this is that it does not include an animal. There is no shedding of blood, as the name implies. There's no shedding of blood with the grain offering. It is a bread offering. And therefore, it represents our labors. It represents our work as we work in the world to transform the raw material of creation into culture, into something useful something we can offer to the Lord. That's what the grain offering represents. In fact, as it's translated grain offering, it could just as easily be translated as tribute offering because that's what this is. That, that's another way of taking the language there. It is a tribute offering. We're offering tribute to the Lord. What's the meaning of the tribute offering? Well, once God has forgiven us and accepted us into his presence, he also accepts our works. He accepts the works of our hands. Now, note this, in the Levitical system, the tribute offering always, 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 always follows the bloody sacrifices of the sin offering and the ascension offering. What do you think would happen if you went to offer a grain offering, a bread offering, the works of your hands, without first offering a sin offering, a bloody sin offering? Blood has to be shed on your behalf by a substitute. You have to be cleansed before your works can be accepted. Or to put it in the language of, you know, say James chapter 2, you have to be justified by faith before you can be justified by works. 
You have to be justified by the blood before your works can be accepted. God accepting our works presupposes God accepting Christ's work on our behalf as our substitute. That's the foundation. And that's why the grain offering, the tribute offering, is put on top of the sin offering and the ascension offering. I asked that question, what do you think would happen if you tried to offer grain, if you tried to offer God tribute, the works of your hands, without first offering him a blood sacrifice, like a sin offering? Well, Cain found out. In Genesis chapter 4, this is one way of looking at what happens in Genesis chapter 4. This is why Cain's offering was not accepted. Abel, his brother, brought a blood sacrifice because he knew he was a sinner deserving death. He knew he needed to be cleansed by blood before God could accept his work. But Cain didn't bring blood. He just brought his works, the works of his hands, straight to the Lord. Grain he had harvested, bread his hands had made. And so what happens? The Lord rejects his offering. See, blood comes first. Blood is what makes you acceptable. We've got a bloody religion. That's just how it is. It's all, it's all about blood. The blood cleanses us. Then our works can be accepted. Now, if you look at the bulletin, uh, you can see. What, what does this translate into in the New Covenant? Well, think back to Philippians chapter 4, where Paul calls the monetary gifts of the Philippians a sacrifice. In the New Covenant, the tribute offering translates into the collection of tithes and offerings. We turn our labor into money and we offer a portion of that money to God to go towards kingdom purposes in and through his church. That's the tribute offering we make. Those tithes and offerings represent your labors. Those tithes and offerings represent the works of your hands. Those tithes and offerings represent who you are, all that you are, all that you have, all that you do is represented in that tribute that you offer to the Lord. And through Christ and Christ's blood shed and by faith, God accepts our works. He accepts the fruits of our labors and he incorporates the fruits of our labors into his eternal kingdom. And then finally, in verse 18, we come to the peace offering. And you can also see that marked in the bulletin and you know what is unique about the peace offering? What's so special about the peace offering? Well, this is the one where the worshiper gets to eat it. This is the offering the worshiper gets to eat. God shares his food with his people in the peace offering. The peace offering is a fellowship meal that God and his worshipers enjoy together. God gives you a place at his table. What an amazing thing. God gives us a place of glory. He exalts us and accepts us and welcomes us and shows us hospitality, we get to sit down at God's table and feast with him. The Passover in the Old Covenant was a special peace offering. Uh, all of the Old Covenant feasts, in fact, were uh, various forms of the peace offering. And of course, for us, our New Covenant peace offering, our New Covenant Passover meal is the Lord's Supper. It is the communion meal. It is the Eucharist. This shared meal is a sign that we are at peace with God. God has befriended us. We are friends with God. And the peace offering, the Lord's Supper that we share together is a sign of that. All of Jesus' meals in the Gospels can be thought of as peace offerings. Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. Well, guess what? Jesus still eats and drinks with sinners. That's the good news. He offers us peace at his table. 
And so we get to celebrate. This is why I think the Lord's Supper, again, this is one of those things so much of the church has wrong. We have turned the Lord's Supper into this somber, morbidly introspective, depressing event when really it is a feast, it is a festival, it should be a time of great rejoicing. It's not a tomb, it's a table. It's not a funeral, it's a feast with and for our living Savior. Finally, just as there was a call to worship at the beginning, so there is a commissioning at the end. In verse 22, Aaron lifts his hands and blesses them. The service ends with a benediction as God, through Aaron, puts his blessing on the people. We've come into God's presence to get a blessing. Having received his blessing, we now go out into the world to be a blessing and to share his blessing with others. We've come into the sanctuary to get God's gifts and having received those gifts and thanked God for those gifts, we now go out into the world to share those gifts with others. That's, you could say, the liturgy after the liturgy. All the ways that we serve God flowing out of this gathering. Now, you can easily remember the structure of the service because each section begins with the letter C. And again, this is marked out. See how convenient this is? This is marked out in our bulletin. This is a lot easier than English grammar, right? This is a lot easier than car repair. Okay? Just remember these C's. Call to worship, confession of sin, that's the sin offering. Consecration, that's the ascension offering. Collection, that's the tribute offering. The communion meal, that's the peace offering. And finally, the commissioning, that's the benediction where we're sent out with God's blessing. Let me wrap this up by pointing out a key reality here. This whole system in Leviticus, this was God's gift to his people. This was not an onerous burden. I mean, in some ways it might have been, but it was really God's gift. It was a sign of God's grace to the people. In fact, in Leviticus 17.11, God says of the sacrificial system, he says, I've given you these sacrifices. I've given you these sacrifices on the altar. They're my gift to you. Before they can be your gift to me, they are my gift to you. And so the whole system, the whole liturgy must be understood as gift. If there's one category you need to understand all of this put together, that's it. It is gift. It is the gospel enacted. It is all grace. It is all grace, the whole service from beginning to end. Worship is less about having an emotional experience and more about receiving God's gifts. And that's one thing so much of the church does not understand today. In fact, one of the reasons why we go chasing after emotional experiences, and we've even turned worship music into a kind of quasi-sacrament, we're trying to get God, we're trying to conjure up God's presence. And we're trying to have some kind of experience because we don't understand what God has offered us in the liturgy, how God promises to be present and give us his gifts through these means. It's not about chasing an emotional experience, although... Having emotions is wonderful. Having emotional experiences can be wonderful. But it's not about chasing that emotional experience. It's about receiving God's gifts. That's what it's all about. And you can see, when you really think about this, you can see how the order or sequence of the liturgy really matches the gospel. The flow of the liturgy is the flow of grace. It's the flow of gift. The liturgy tells a story. And the story it tells is the gospel. And that story is now your story. And you enter into this story every single week when we gather. It's a rags to riches story. We come in with nothing but our sin. Nothing but the mud that we picked up throughout the week. And God washes us off. He makes us clean. 
He renews us in that way. And then he gives us his gifts. He assures us of his peace and favor and his forgiveness. And he gives us his wisdom. And he gives us his blessing. And it all ends with us sitting gloriously at the Lord's table. So we go from kneeling in contrition as a broken-hearted people, to being exalted and sitting gloriously in heavenly places at the Lord's table. That's the story arc of the liturgy, because that's the story arc of the gospel. And that's the story arc of the Christian life. Every week, the gospel, that pattern, gets reenacted and re rehearsed again and again. See, we are sinners who are forgiven and who are being transformed and who are enabled to do good works that God accepts and who feast with God and who are then sent out on mission. Again, the liturgy is not so much something we do for God as it is something God does for us. It is the Lord's service. The liturgy applies the gospel to us comprehensively every week. God gives us his gifts in the liturgy. God sets an appointment. He says, I will meet with you at 10 a.m. every Sunday at this location, 7160 Cahaba Valley Road. I'll meet with you there, and I will give you my gifts. Don't miss it. Come and get it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.